Hello and welcome to another Quarant stream. I am, of course, of your host, Joe Magician. And today we'll be talking about something that will make a lot more sense why we're doing it today when you see the video that goes live on Monday. That's right. I completed a video. <laughs> I know it's been a while. They take uh, they take a lot longer to make than they do these things. Um, the audio editing, blah, blah, blah. You don't really care about that. Long story short, the streams are easier than the videos, so there's more streams than videos. But that will be going live Monday as a premiere. Uh, I'm guessing about probably 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, maybe 11. Um, I'll put it on all the social media and stuff. But a big part of that video and something that I've been thinking about quite a lot since I started it is, of course, the Lightning Lord himself, Beric Dondarrion, the sixth times resurrected, I think, at this point, the man who just will not die, the leader of the Brotherhood Without Banners. And I thought it'd be a good time to talk about him as a character, um, what he means to the story, how, why George is using him the way he is, how, why did he create Lady Stoneheart? That very, very strange set of circumstances that involves warging, resurrection, the Starks, Weirwood dreams, and all of it. It's like a nice big microcosm of all the weird fantasy stuff that's happening in A Song of Ice and Fire, just centered around Beric Dondarrion. Like a cat, yeah, he has seven lives. Just can't kill Beric. Well, you can. He just won't stay dead unless he gives up his life for some reason. Um, oh, hang on a second. The video, the video is a little bit too bright. And nope, now that's too dark. <laughs> uh, sorry. All right, that looks good. Well, it looks better anyway. <laughs> um, I'll be. I'm going to be cutting that out of the full version. Don't you worry about it. So yeah, I thought it'd be a good time to talk about Beric Dondarrion, all the ways he connects to all these things, and and just do like a, a deep dive on him as a character because. He is one of those characters that drives quite a lot of the plot in the Song of Ice and Fire. He interacts with a lot of, of the um, important characters, important plot lines. What he's doing, not just on a political or tactical level, but also on the larger level, on the fantasy level, like prophecy and all these things, it all seems to be tied up in this kind of innocuous guy from the Stormlands. So, yeah, we're going to go we're going to go deep dive on Beric right into one of those wounds. Oh, that didn't sound good. I shouldn't have said that. This is why you write your introductions ahead of time. We don't do it live. <laughs> uh, as always, if you guys could, um, if you enjoy what you're hearing, if you enjoy the content, you know, subscribe, hit that little bell button so it notifies you uh, when I go live. Um, leave a like as you guys are watching live on the video. Uh, if we get to 150 likes, I'll put on my brand new wizard hat, which looks really cool. 175, got my Gurm hat behind it, and a 200, um, forget to 200 today, uh, we'll give away another t-shirt. That's what we'll do. We'll give away another thing from my Threadless shop since we were talking about it before we went live. So, you know, slam that like button, um, do all the things, and I just want to say thank you to the um, donations I got before the stream went live. One from Maura Lee. She said, for Joe Magician, just to show love, appreciation, support for all this fabulous content and Saturday live streams. I work th Sunday through Thursday, so your Saturday live streams always a special treat for me to ask my many, many questions and participate in the chat. Yes, Maura did give a lot of questions ahead of time. Um, uh, thank you. You and your channel are much love. Thank you, Maura. That's very, very generous of you. PG-13. I don't do PG-13. This is, this is definitely an R-rated stream. <laughs> they all are. R. Pirates. Funny? Yeah, maybe. And also uh, $5 from uh, Danny McKay. Thank you, as always, Danny. And before the stream went live, there was a $10 super chat also from Morley. Uh, she sent through her number one fan sticker, it looks like. 
thank you guys so much. I really appreciate it. And also the, all the support from my patrons. Um, we'll go through that later. New patrons and all that other kind of stuff. But yes, Barometric Dondarian. Amazing. Uh, let me close that. All right, here we go. So I think, obviously, as we normally do, the best place to start with these characters is what kind of backstory has George given us? What sort of uh, characterizations has he given us before the story started? Their history, their house, um, what little we know about them, that kind of stuff, because they almost they almost always inform what's going on in the future. And with Barrick, this is actually one of those characters where you can get quite a lot out of him as a character just by starting back and looking at his his house and um, just kind of the strangeness of his life before he even shows up proper on the page. <clears throat> so let's go for his uh, let's go for his early life first. He was born in around 276 or 277 AC, which means when Robert's Rebellion broke out, he was probably around like six to eight years old or something like that. So somewhere around Bran's age, Rickon's age, fairly young um, kid, very unlikely to have any sort of role in Robert's Rebellion itself, but young enough to have uh, grown up with it, destroying his young life. Probably a lot of the people he knew in the Stormlands died since it was Robert, Robert himself, his liege lord that was... Uh, attacking everything we don't know anything about barrack's family though um no named parents no named relatives the only member of house dondarian and all of a song of ice and fire itself proper is barrack so that's that's really all we got from the old dondarians it's certainly possible that barrack's father may have died during the rebellion who knows what happened to his mother george typically does not give backstory to female characters in history which is one of his one of his flaws, I would say, in his writing, um, for instance, like people have complained for years. What happened to Ned's mother? I don't know. Nobody knows. She just kind of disappeared off page. Sort of how it goes. Um, we know that when Beric appears on the page, he is the Lord of House Dondarrion. So some point, it seems like his father died relatively young. Beric took over. Who is the Dondarrion and Duncan Egg? Ah, we'll be getting to that one. We're going to do a brief little history of House Dondarrion here. <clears throat> Uh, probably about the same age as Renly. Yeah, similar kind of thing. It's very possible Renly and um, and Beric may have known each other. They may have hung out. Beric, did, I mean, Renly did his um, his progresses around the Stormlands after becoming Lord of the Stormlands via Robert. So Beric being one of his principal lords, they probably have met. They probably know each other. Um, George seems to have fun with Aesith jokes about Jesus being a zombie. Yeah, that that is something you can't get away from. Beric does seem to have a lot of... Uh, a lot of Christian iconography around him and the way his story unfolds. So let's talk about House, House Dondarrion. Who the hell are these guys? Why do we care about House Dondarrion? Uh, so the Dondarrions are marcher lords from the Stormlands. They live in the castle Blackhaven. If you're not sure what a marcher lord is, it, the basic idea is that there's a group of lords through the Stormlands and the, and the Reach who essentially serve as buffers against the uh against the dornish the dornish invasions that have come very regularly throughout history like the danes and the sacking of old town the marcher lords are essentially the um, the knights watch against the dornish i guess um not like literally but in terms of the function they serve similar sort of thing would be the reeds for the north as they hold moat Kalin. um there's also the bloody gate that for the errands that kind of stuff so uh held by the royces i believe yeah, held by the Royces. So this is 
Blackhaven itself is a very, very precarious and often war-torn part of the Stormlands. As I said, they they serve as the first line defense against any kind of Dornish incursion. So you can imagine that over the lifetime of House Dondarrion, they have probably had their castle captured or sacked many, many, many times throughout history. Not permanently, as they appear to be a relatively old house. They go, um, so they managed to keep it. But yeah, <laughs> it's it's not a pleasant place to be. It would be kind of like if you if you were the Lord of Moat Caelan. That's kind of the idea you should be getting from here. The um, and there's a uh, nobody wants Moat Caelan. Nobody holds it. It's a it's a castle. It's sitting there. People don't want it. Kind of the same for Blackhaven. Maybe part of the reason that nobody's taken it from the Dondarians, because what kind of idiot would you want to be to be the the first line of defense against the Dornish? Um, oh, yes. Good call. Um, Archmaster Emma, she's talking about how the Marcher Lords are a real thing in England. Uh, Henry the seventh stepdad was a Marcher Lord. So he held the land right on the English side of the Welsh border. Yeah. Um, Marcher Lords, I believe, fought the Welsh and maybe the Scottish. Uh, for the English. So that's the idea that George is drawing on here. First line of defense, the first. So we also learned that uh, Castle Blackhaven has basalt walls, volcanic walls. Basalt's kind of an unusual choice. That Basalt is usually, um, that's kind of the stuff that most of the seafloor is made from. So being in the Red Mountains, being made of basalt is certainly an interesting choice for George to put that in there. Um, they also have what is known as an incredibly deep dry moat. If you don't know what that is, the general idea behind a moat is if you see it in popular culture, it's that it's a large ditch that's uh, dug around a castle. A lot of times it will be filled with water and stuff like that in order for enemies to not be able to assault the walls. But the, the Dondarians go the other way. And instead of having a moat filled with water that maybe you could drain or anything like that, it's a dry moat, meaning it's like a 30 feet deep pit surrounding the castle so nobody's um nobody's filling that in nobody's going to assault them and it may that may be the the little bit of information about why the dundarians have been so successful about um not losing their castle over the long term why they haven't been wiped out by the dornish or the many wars between the stormlands and the reach <clears throat> um yeah marcher lords are a thing everywhere that's very true Anywhere there's a border, there's always somebody that's who holds that land and they're the ones that feel the conflict, basically. Um, so what kind of culture are we talking about for the Dondarians? Well, they're Stormlanders and obviously they're Marcher Lords. So this would create kind of a culture in their house of probably being on edge and being much more martial than usual. These are not the Knights of Summer that um, Catelyn makes fun of from the uh, the Reach Knights who essentially just want to play at night and go to tourneys and essentially just you know be idle lords these are the kind of guys that would that would be very similar to um night's watch or the reeds people that are used to being under threat all the time used to defending from invaders so that's something to think about when you think about beric dondarian george is setting this up that uh beric is somebody that is used to conflict and has grown up with a lot of stress and pressure about it his whole life, especially probably being a boy lord. Imagine being like 10 years old, you're the lord of Blackhaven, and you're just hoping the Dornish don't start shit. Um, and it's not necessarily the Dornish in general. It's not like the Martells sending um, armies up the Prince's Pass and the Boneway, which of course they do, but 
the primary um, enemy of House Dondarrion throughout history appears to be what are called these Vulture Kings. Um, these are essentially sort of like kings beyond the law a little bit. They're kind of rebel, they're rebel lords and bandits, outlaws that live in the around the Red Mountains to the south of Blackhaven. Uh, there have been many vulture kings over time. Most of the time, they don't get very far. They get put down by a king. Jaehaerys Targaryen um, famously, supposedly killed one of the vulture kings himself with Blackfire. You know, they, they rise every once in a while. They cause some shit. Um, they usually get defeated, and then it goes back. And then there's, there's kind of a, a hidden thing with the vulture kings. It's likely that they have a, a relationship with the House Blackmont, who also has the vulture as their sigil and are in this area it's very likely that the vulture kings are not random that they may be um, bastards of great houses they may be funded by the dornish as a essentially a guerrilla war against the marcher lords to the north um, to raid them and annoy them to have you know to fight them without having to actually declare war or anything yeah troublemakers <laughs> uh good point um Kulnitsky. I was going to get to that in a, in a bit, but yeah, it is strange that a marcher lord is betrothed to a Dane, especially because the Red Mountains include the Torrentine and the, um, the historical territory of House Dane. So it's like, interesting. Um, we were talking a little bit earlier, you guys were talking about the Dane, I mean, the Dondarian that shows up in Duncan Egg during the Hedge Knight. I've got the quote here. Um, essentially what happens is when Dunk is looking for help from his trial by seven, he looks out and sees that there's a Dondarian there, Sir Manford Dondarian. Um, and he pleads uh, Manford for help because he, he thinks he's going to die because nobody's going to help him. Spoiler alert, he doesn't die. People do help him. But this is this not only serves as an interesting history of the Dondarians, like like for characterization, but it also gives us their founding myth. And not all houses have like actual founding myths. Um, a lot of them are just like, random stories of good deeds this is something that is legitimately like supernatural this is the kind of thing that you see from like the ironborn you see from the durandans this is legitimately um something strange <laughs> so here we go <clears throat> if he went back to the castle without sir manford he was lost dunk eyed the purple lightning embroidered embroidered across the black wool of sir manford's surcoat and said i remember your father telling the camp how your house got its sigil one stormy night, as the first of your line bore a message across the Dornish marches, an arrow killed his horse beneath them and spilled him on the ground. Two Dornishmen came out of the darkness in ringmail and crested helms. His sword had broken beneath him when he fell. When he saw that, he thought he was doomed. But as the Dornishmen closed to cut him down, lightning cracked from the sky. It was, bright, it was a bright burning purple, and it split striking the Dornishmen in their steel and killing them both where they stood. The message gave the Storm King victory over the Dornish, and in thanks he raised the messenger to lordship. He was the first Lord Dondarian, so he took for his arms a forked purple lightning bolt on a black field powdered with stars. Okay, so that's, that's a pretty intense um, mythos for the start of a house, right? And it's one of... There's not really a nice way to say this, but a lot of times George gives houses backstories and they give them founding myths that are, don't really do much. Like um, there's some intriguing things about them. Maybe they connect with this, the character in some way, but this one connects with Beric in particular in an extreme kind of foreshadowing sense. Um, 
It didn't feel like the Dundarians served fealty to the Baratheons and Duncan Edwards before the Baratheons became their liege lord. I'm going to get to that, um, actually, probably right now. The idea that the Dondarians probably served the Durandans, not the Baratheons. Um, so this sets up a very a few important themes for Beric as a character, using this story as foreshadowing for what's to come, or what as um, for a way of understanding his character since Dun- since uh, the Hedge Knight came out after a Clash of Kings or Storm of Swords, I think. So the first one is the idea of a lowly messenger for a greater lord or king who will be saved by legitimate divine intervention um, and will serve as an important rallying cry for saving his lands against his invaders. If you read that back, the idea is that getting this message through to the Storm King stopped an invader from taking over their lands and essentially destroying them. And not only that, it was the gods themselves that reached out and helped Beric. I mean, helped uh, this future Lord Dondarrion. When you think about the fact that Beric himself is touched by the gods themselves, he serves as a messenger as the rising tide of magic and resurrection and the whites that are coming. He's almost like a wake-up call for the rest of Westeros in the same way this is. There's also an invasion coming, obviously, from the far north. So it's not hard to see how those two uh, parallel each other. But this is also something interesting about the Dondarians that sometimes when you look into the names George gives his characters, they don't they don't mean a lot. Some, he often says he has baby books and he just kind of makes up names. Um, sometimes they mean something. Sometimes they don't. Dondarian, actually, if you break it down, does. So one part of it is uh, the part Don, which often means boss or lord. And then Darian, which is a name that means gift. So. Dondarian means the Lord's gift or the boss's gift. Or if you want to say it another way, if you combine this with the the story of the Dondarians themselves and their their entry myth, they are a gift from the gods. Or I guess if you want to think about it in terms of Beric, a gift from a lore. That's something that's a way you can very easily take apart the name and use it to enhance your understanding of what George is doing with them. Every part of the way he's saying that Beric and his house are like, hey, pay attention to this stuff. This is really important. This is the fantasy coming into the um, the low fantasy. It's really important to pay attention to what's going on here. Yeah, it's, it is a pretty metal house origin. Lightning bolts come from the sky and destroy them. Um, somebody mentioned this earlier, but it's also important to point out that the Dondarians may be related to the old Durandans of old. So it, it's, they're kind of like cognates for each other. If you say them quickly, Dondarian, Durandan, um, they have a similar sound to them. And then actually, I looked at them. If you actually swap them. So Dondarian, if you um, if you put it at the end, it would be Durandan and Darian Don. So it may be that House Dondarian is an offshoot of of the long lost House Dardar- um House Durandan, basically. Um, it almost feels like a broken vo- uh, form of the name. It has almost all the same letters. It has the same kind of word construction, has the same kind of, uh, I mean, they both have Don in them, meaning Lord or whatever. And there's the fact that the Dondarians are called the Lightning Lords. Now, it doesn't take a lot to see that the, the relationship between storms and lightning are fairly, fairly on the nose there. Um, lightning Lords, Storm Lords, the storm brings the lightning. The, the, the Dondarians may be the lightning of the Storm King. That kind of thing. You know, George is very fond of layering lost bloodlines and far-flung families throughout Westeros. 
Uh, yeah, exactly. Isabella Lamego. It may be like Stark and Car Stark. Um, yeah, just an offshoot of a long lost house. <laughs> yeah, it has very uh, Dunedain vibes. Yeah, that's my tinfoil for House Dondarrion. They are related to the Durandians just a long, long time ago. To the point that basically no one forgot, but George is using the imagery of the lightning, the similarities of the names and all these other kind of things to kind of put them together. If you want to look a little bit closer. Oh, yeah, makes sense. <clears throat> and then also we get their sigil, which does much the same uh, as was in that quote. You have the purple lightning on black store on black stars. Again, this is reinforcing the idea that Beric is a lightning bolt from the heavens or from the gods, basically. Um, it also serves the purpose of making him a very recognizable character in the story because he's that weird lord that has like a big purple lightning bolt across his tunic and he wears his starry cloak so it makes it so that when um when people see him on the battleground he's very easily recognized hey amanda how's it going glad you could join us um you know all this really stands out as george is gesturing very very <laughs> very strongly at Beric Dondarrion and his house and all the history about it and their myth to basically be like, pay attention. Look at this guy. He's really important. He's foreshadowing for something much bigger. He is integral to the fantasy plot. Um, and as I said earlier, most of them don't really mean much for the characters. A lot of them are just dressing or they're just heraldly or flavor for their house. Basically you need to be able to tell them apart. So George gives them, um, Gives them different houses, give them different history. They don't they don't usually amount to much. Dondarians have a lot. So yeah. Oh, Amanda, you had a stream with uh Gray Area last night? Cool. Hope it went awesome. Uh so let's go away from the far-flung history of the Dondarians and look at look at Barrick's life himself. Um, so there somebody earlier on in the chat noted this, and I just want to bring it up again. It's really strange that House Dondarian is connected to the Danes through Beric. Um, from a very young age, Beric has found himself entangled with the Danes. Um, they've been enemies for thousands of years. They've probably been on both sides of wars over and over and over again. Danes have been killing Dondarians probably for generations. This would be kind of like uh, a Dane marrying an oak heart. It like doesn't happen, and yet it does. Beric Dondarian is the Lord of um, Blackhaven is betrothed to Lady Illyria Dane. And not only that, he has a squire. His squire and his the kid he is fostering is the Lord of Starfall, Lord Edric Dane, otherwise known as Ned Dane. And this has led myself and other readers to question, like, what's going on here, George? What's missing here that's making a marcher lord not just marry somebody from Dorne, but essentially tie their houses together like extremely strongly this is the kind of thing that you do when you're making a formal alliance like what the hell's going on <laughs> very very odd so this has led um a lot of questions about does this have something to do with perhaps the tower of joy and Rhaegar targaryen and john snow and all these things because Anytime you have a mystery around the Danes, the obvious question in the current timeline is like, OK, does this have something to do with uh, with RLJ or anything like that? So I decided to take a look at the facts of this and let's let's see if we can tease out anything interesting about the about Beric. So he would have been somewhere around six to eight when the war broke out. 
He would not be old enough to do anything in the war, to do any kind of scheming or something like that. He's probably too young to have been a squire. He probably could have been a cupbearer at some point. But again, there's no real reason to think that the Danes and Dondarians would have an alliance during Robert's Rebellion before or afterwards. Um, so it's hard to imagine that the Dondarians would have sent young Beric to Starfall. Um, again, all their history is fighting with Dornishmen from the Red Mountains. The Danes are the historical lords of the Red Mountains, along with the Ironwoods. Um, and, but this gets down to there's a mystery about RLJ, basically, and the Tower of Joy. And that mystery is, how did Ned find it? This is, this is a, a problem many in the fandom have tried to solve, and myself included. How did Ned do this? How did he even find Liana there in the Prince's Pass? Because we call it the Tower of Joy. It's a famous thing now. But it's actually an abandoned guardhouse, essentially, um, in the Red Mountains of Dorne that nobody knows about. It was Lyanna was there to not be found. And yet Ned, a dude who has never been to Dorne, basically has never been to uh, never been south of King's Landing with a bunch of companions who are also Northmen who have never been south of King's Landing, find themselves tracking down Lyanna and the Tower of Joy in the middle of nowhere. It's like, okay. How did you guys do this? How did this happen? And this has led to the uh, suggestion that it seems very likely that Ned got help from somebody, that somebody told him where Liana was, where the Tower of Joy is, and probably led him there because a bunch of uh, random Northmen are not going to not going to do it on their own. It's it'd be as implausible as if you sent like um, if like Quentin Martell landed in the north and then found the crofters village it like wouldn't happen so somebody had to show him um so and if you track the progress of ned so he goes to king's landing for the sack of king's landing then he goes to storm's end where he lifts the siege on uh on stannis and then from there i think he goes directly down to dorne to try and find uh liana and the tower of joy he goes missing. He um, gets a few guys out of prison that were in King's Landing, and then he comes back with Jon Snow, and that's kind of it. <laughs> so the question, a lot of it has been like, did Ashara Dane help Ned? Because that's a connection there too. But there's also this question of the Danes and the Dondarians and their closeness. So did Beric's father, um, Lord Dondarian, have something to do with this? He was a Stormlander. Obviously, he was a Marcher Lord, and he would be on the way from Storm's End down to. The Tower of Joy. So perhaps there was multiple avenues of help for Ned Stark to find his way to his sister. Maybe the Dondarians helped him get him there. They discovered the Danes, and maybe this is like one big secret pact, essentially, about what happened at the Tower of Joy. And because it seems like I, I, it seems like there's something very strange going on here. Like for instance, maybe Rhaegar on his way down to the Princess Pass, he stopped at Blackhaven. Historically, the Dondarians have been um, associated with the Targaryens throughout history. Um, like the biggest example is obviously uh, Aemon the Dragon Knight and King and King Baylor the First stopped at Blackhaven after being released from the Wills, I believe. Um, there's also the idea that Dena, Jenna Dondarian was married to Baylor Breakspear, so there is a relationship there between the Dondarians and the Targaryens. So maybe that's how they knew where Rhaegar was going. And they sort of kept it to themselves. <clears throat> um, but the 
the placement, the culture, and the oddness of the relationship suggests that there's something going on much more deeply between the families. And it seems like it's not something that the Dondarans owe the, the Danes. It seems to be going the other way because the, the Dondarians are marrying Illyria Dane and they're getting Ned Dane as a foster. Those are usually um, the signs that's, that a house is being paid off in some way. So perhaps the, the, that marriage pact and that fostering have something to do with RLJ. Maybe they know and they... And the marriage was arranged in a way to keep them quiet, basically, because otherwise it doesn't make any sense. <clears throat> if you want to solve, I don't know, that, that's my attempt to try and solve the mystery at like, why are the Dondarians and the Danes marrying each other? Why are the what's going on with the Danes in the Tower of Joy? If you fit them all together and you trace Ned's path, it kind of I think it just kind of makes logical sense that they were involved somehow. The Danes were aware the Dondarians were involved. And in order to keep everything quiet on both sides, of the prince's past, basically, they uh, they married each other. Especially because when you look at Ned Dane himself, I mean, he's called Edric. I mean, his name is Edric Dane, but they named him Ned. That's his nickname. If Ned really did something horrible to the Danes at the Tower of Joy and everything afterwards, that seems like a weird name. It would be like um, it'd be like Robert naming one of his kids Ares, basically, or Rhaegar. Like, didn't happen. <laughs> So then we get to uh, the more current storyline where out of the past, we're into the present. Uh, we get to the turning of the hand in a Game of Thrones. The young, handsome and apparently totally hot bear shows up at the turning of the hand that's being thrown for Ned Stark. Um, we got the quote here. The first rider through the gate carried a long black banner. The silk rippled in the wind like a living thing. Across the fabric was blazoned a night sky slashed with purple lightning. Make way for Lord Beric, the writer shouted. Make way for Lord Beric. And close behind came the young lord himself, a dashing figure on a black courser, with red gold hair and a black satin cloak dusted with stars. Here to fight in the hands tourney, my lord, a guardsman called out to him. Here to win the hands tourney. Yeah, way to go, Beric. Lord Beric shouted back as the crowd cheered. Uh, and then we get another one here. <laughs> Apparently, Jane Poole fell in love with him. Jane Poole confessed herself frightened by the look of Zalabar, Jalabar Zo, an exiled prince from the Summer Islands who wore a cape of green and scarlet feathers over skin as dark as night. But when she saw, but when she saw young Lord Beric Dondarrion with his hair like red gold and his black shield slashed by lightning, she pronounced herself willing to marry him in an instant. Ayo, hot Lord Dondarrion. <laughs> Making the ladies swoon. Well, at least the tweet, the teens swoon, preteens swoon. I guess that's the old there. Gotta love the confidence out of Barrack. You here to fight, my lord? I'm here to win. Yeah! Woo! Badass. Um, and then we get another quote here from Sansa. I suppose, Sansa said doubtfully, Barrack Dondarian was handsome enough, but he was awfully old, almost 22. Uh, she considers 22 old. Doesn't make me happy. The Night of Flowers would have been much better. Of course, Jane had been in love with Lord Beric ever since she had first glimpsed him in the lists. Sansa thought she was being silly. Jane was only Stuart's daughter, after all. And no matter how much she mooned after him, Lord Beric would never look at someone so far beneath him, even if she hadn't been half his age. Yeah, <laughs> all of the thirsty Westerosi girls are after Beric. So Sansa's list of guys she thinks is hot throughout a Game of Thrones, I think it goes Waymar Royce um loris tyrell joffrey and Beric. i believe that's the guys that 
she totally goes heads over heels for. God, she thinks 22 is too old. I mean, she also she's also like 12, so I guess that makes sense. But it's just like it's like the thing on the Internet where people where people on Twitter are like, oh, you're ancient. It's like, I'm, I'm not that old. Mm, bummer. Um, so, yeah, the before his fall, basically, before he becomes the corpse knight, Beric is super hot. He's confident. And actually, people know him. That's one thing that I think that's important about this whole scene and his introduction. It's he's not a lesser lord. He's not some hedge knight. He's not somebody that nobody gives a shit about. It shows up at the tourney and like a couple of people go like, oh, he's here. No, there's like people cheering for him. He stands out. People know him, even out in the crown lands, which tells you that Beric is probably not the kind of guy who stays at home in Blackhaven. Um, you turned 20 yesterday. You're too old for Sansa. That's correct. You would be elderly, according to Sansa Anders Graham. Um, but yeah, he's so he's well known. This may be from the tourney circuit. He may that's maybe how he spends his time. Um, that's kind of the only way you you probably would have it so that a guardsman and the random crowd in King's Landing knows who he is. Barrack travels around and jousts, but he's not a good jouster. He's like not particularly good at it at all. Um, he enters into the hands tourney. The first he loses. Well, he wins his first round against a hedge knight, but his horse dies. It gets stabbed by the guy with his lance. That's a bummer. He goes up in the second round against Thoros Amir and gets absolutely tossed. Um, but, you know, he looks super handsome doing it. So isn't that all that really matters? Always be handsome. That's the important thing about, um, <laughs> about Beric Dondarrion. Um, and he also has a good reputation. People are excited to see him. He's not like Gregor Clegane. He's not like Sandor. He, you know, he seems to be a well-liked, but probably an idle lord who doesn't really have a purpose in his life. That's sort of the the demographic for what you get from all these lords that just go to tourney to tourney to tourney. Or they just, um, hang on a second. This looks a little bit too loud. There we go. You're old enough to be Anders' mom. That's right, Amanda. We're all old here. <laughs> Everyone's old accounting to Sansa. Two feet in the grave at this point. Um, we also don't know if he's a particularly good fighter. It's not noted if he entered into the melee. We know Thoros of Mir ended up winning that. Um, that's kind of that's kind of all we know about Beric. He seems kind of like Loris, but um, well liked, handsome, goes to joust, kind of kind of famous throughout Westeros. Um, also, Sansa indicates that he's a higher lord. I mean, he's the lord of Blackhaven, and apparently that comes with some social clout that. Jane Poole would never have a chance of marrying her in Sansa's mind. So that's a way of continuing to elevate him higher. Um, actually, Sansa's even considering the marriage to him, but she essentially goes like, ew, he's old. But otherwise, it seems like he would probably be a match for um, for Lord Stark's daughter. So good, good opportunity to see where he is in the world. Um, it's also important to note that this whole scene got retconned, basically. George decided later that Edric Dane exists. And that he's um, Lord Beric's squire. So he's actually here throughout the entire tourney and stuff. And he essentially tells Arya later, well, I want to say hi to your father, but I could I could, he couldn't figure out what to say. He was too shy, so he didn't do it. That's why Edric doesn't say anything, but he is technically there. Excellent, excellent retconning by Georgie boy. Uh, so that's kind of where Beric is introduced. Not a good jouster, not a good fighter. Handsome. Seems like a nice dude. But that's kind of it. Um, then we get the, the thing that really pushes his story into high gear. And that is the bringing the mountain to justice. Oh, I just wanted to say uh, briefly about halfway through. Um, please slam that like button, subscribe, do all the things. 
uh 150 likes we got 153 people watching get that up to 150 put on my awesome new wizards hat for the rest of the stream um you know do all those things if you're enjoying what you're hearing if it's your first time here all that kind of stuff and also look out for monday that'll be with my new video about lady stoneheart and the winds of winter will be going live um after the stream will be going live for grand maester level patrons on tomorrow on sunday will be going up for um archmaester level patrons so yes slam that mf and like button do all the things um and i was like i just want to say thank you to the new patrons as well let me pull these up um ross temby uh jen snow and maester zen and also maura lee who recently decided to ascend from the archmaesters today she is now grand maester maura lee thank you so much maura uh thank you guys for all your support and i hope it's worth it it seems like it is you guys seem to enjoy it um there's also like if you sign up access to the patron slack there's coupons for threadless that kind of stuff so all right let's get back into this <laughs> yes jess you you disgrace in westeros 31 not married no kings oh to the silent sisters with you will i get a crown of gold no two hats is enough two hats is probably too much i would rather go down to just one just the wizard's hat but you know the they're both halloween costumes basically <laughs> So before the War of the Five Kings starts in earnest and Robert actually dies from his hunting wound, uh, trying to kill a boar. Don't try and kill boars. Boars will kill you. Uh, Ned calls for the head of Gregor Clegane. Uh, following Kat's capture of Tyrion, Tywin has ordered the mountain and the mountains med to raid the Riverlands uh, in revenge and also to try and pressure Ned and Kat to handing back Tyrion. And while this is going on, Loris Tyrell initially volunteers. He says, I'll do it. I'll go get the mountain. And everyone just kind of laughs and goes like, <laughs> no, 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 Loris. And then Ned kind of out of nowhere, just kind of points to the back of the room and says, uh, Beric, you, you're in charge. Um, so we got the quote here. Ned eased himself slowly back onto the hard iron seat of Aegon's misshapen throne. His eyes searched the faces along the wall. Lord Beric, he called out. So I guess Ned is kind of looking for people he knows. I'm, it's kind of really unclear. He called out Thoros of Mir, Sir Gladden, Lord Lothar. The men stepped forward one by one. Each of you to assemble 20 men and to bring word to Gregor's keep. 20 of my own guards shall go with you. Lord Beric Dondarrion, you shall have the command as befit your, name, as befit your rank. <clears throat> and the name of Robert of House Baratheon, the first of his name, King of the Andals, and the Roinar and the First Men, Lord of the Seven Kingdoms, Protector of the Realm, by the word of Eddard of House Stark, his hand, I charge you to ride to the Western Lands with all haste, to cross the Red Fork of the Trident under the King's flag, and there bring the King's justice to the false knight, Gregor Clegane, to all those who shared in his crimes. I denounce him and attaint him, and strip him of all ranks and titles, of all lands and incomes and holdings, and do sentence him to death. May the gods take pity on his soul. The young lord with the red gold hair bowed as you command Lord Eddard. So yeah, th this is really weird. Why Beric Dondarrion? Um, it's there's a lot of lords there. There's a lot of people in King's Landing for um, it's a lot of people in King's Landing basically for the tourney of the hand. Why him? I don't know. Uh, Ned does not explain it. He never explains it later. He doesn't explain it in his thoughts. If you wanted to be slightly tinfoiling and you wanted to go back to the connection between the Danes and the Dondarians and the Tower of Joy, maybe Ned has a good impression of the Dondarians and Beric from whatever their role was. Um, that that's why he chose Beric. 
I mean, Berg has a good reputation, but it's not like he won the tourney. He did. I mean, he chooses Thoros who won the melee, but the other two are just kind of random guys. Um, so I don't know. These are not the dudes I would have sent. Um, maybe you should have sent Loras. I don't, I don't know. It, it doesn't seem like a mission that's, um, likely to succeed with who you put in charge. It's not even noted that Beric has ever commanded anybody before. I mean, he's the Lord of Blackhaven. So you suspect that he's gotten a lot more martial training than other people, but just like, there's not a lot going on here. I would, I would have sent one of the Kingsguard, maybe send Barristan out or something like that. Um, <clears throat> oh, hang on a second. Let me turn that down a little bit. Okay. <clears throat> that's right let me be <laughs> he sent Beric to multiple rebirths and doing so inadvertently saved Catan from permanent death interesting I mean there's definitely a reason George sent him it's just not clear why Ned the character did it um very very odd there's only tinfoil there otherwise who the hell knows it doesn't really make a lot of sense um I mean it really just seemed like Ned just like pointed her on the throne and was like uh you 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 and you who are you okay you're in charge go get the, the mountain because it's not like the mountain is just a pushover like he's eight feet tall he's a monstrous guy whoever you send is at like great great likelihood to die maybe it was just like people that he thought were expendable i don't know this is one of ned's greatest mistakes although maybe not in the long term because of how george ends up using barrack um so dondarian and the king's men go out seeking gregor clegane unfortunately they find gregor clegane and they find him at the mummer's ford um this is the quote from harwin i believe we had lions on every side and i thought i was doomed with the rest but alan shouted commands and restored order to our ranks and those still a horse rallied around thoros and cut our way free six score we'd been that morning but by dark no more than two score were left and lord Beric was gravely wounded thoros drew a foot of lance from his chest that night and <clears throat> and poured boiling wine into the hole it left yikes that sucks that's that's really bad. Beric, the, the mountain essentially impaled Beric on a lance and left him to die. And he should have died. Um, every man of us was certain his lordship would be dead by daybreak. But Thoros prayed with him all night beside the fire. And when dawn came, he was still alive and stronger than he'd been. It was a fortnight before he could mount a horse. But his courage kept us strong. Doesn't really make sense. It's two sentences. He told us that our war was not ended at the Mummer's Ford, but only begun there and that every man of ours who'd fallen to be avenged tenfold. So, as it turns out, Beric did not survive that lance. Um, yeah, he totally died at the Mummer's Ford. The Gregor Clegane got him. He's dead. And then Thoros uh, did this. He explains it to Arya Stark about how he brought back, um, how he brought back Beric. I have no magic child, only prayers. That first time, his lordship had a hole through him and blood in his mouth, and I knew there was no hope. So when his poor torn chest stopped moving, I gave him the good God's own kiss to send him on his way. I filled my mouth with fire and breathed the flames inside him, down my throat, down the no, down his throat to lungs and heart and soul. The last kiss it is called, and many a time I've seen the old priest bestowed on the Lord's servants as they died. I have given it a time or two myself, as all priests must. But never before had I felt a dead man shudder as the fire filled him, nor seen his eyes come open. It was not me who raised him, my lady. It was the Lord. Relore was not done with him yet. Life is warm and warmth is fire, and fire is God's and God's alone. So 
again, we were talking about earlier the relationship between the Dondarians and divine intervention. This is divine intervention. Boros is here saying that he's administered the last kiss before. He's seen other priests do it too. Um, it doesn't work. It does not bring people back to life. Except it does now for Beric Dondarian for totally unknown reasons. Um, it restores Beric Dondarian to life. And not only that, it heals, kind of heals the hole in his chest. Um, the only way to explain this, I think, is that the idea that Daenerys had brought back, I think she brought back the dragons by this point. So maybe magic was returning to the world. Uh, maybe something sort of close to the idea that the glass candles are burning again. And like, there's something going on there, but this is not a ritual that's supposed to work. And it does out of nowhere for Beric. Um, truly a miracle. We were talking about earlier how it was also like very Christian in nature. It's just like, yeah, he just he just returns from the dead and no big deal. Except Thoros doesn't understand it. Beric doesn't understand it. Nobody does. <clears throat> yeah, that's right. Great wisdom. The, the wounds do not heal completely. Totally right. Uh, yeah, he still he keeps his wounds, but he's he's not dead anymore. He's up and walking around. He's Beric Dondarrion. Uh, so yeah, what's, what's going on here? <laughs> Why? What, what, what's going on? Um, and it wasn't just this, this one time Thoros brings Beric back from the dead six times in total. Um, as he states in that quote to Arya, he was desperate and he didn't think it was going to do anything. He was just essentially, it's like a funerary, right? Basically it's the same thing as like putting like coins over somebody's eyes or something like that. It was just a way to say goodbye to his friend. And instead, whoops, Beric comes back to life. Uh, and, you know, it, it's a miracle. He's healed. Well, it, it, hang on a second. Not not so fast. Um, he is. This is not Gandalf the White from Gandalf the Grey. This is a very George take on resurrection. Um, as uh, Greyway Sim was just talking about, it's not a great thing to be resurrected this way because he's not as he was before. Beric Dondarrion has become a fire white. Um, actually, I just thought it'd be fun to go through different deaths. So the first one, impaled by a lance by Gregor Clegane. That sucks. Smashed with a mace on the side of the head by Sir Britton Craighall. Uh, Sir Burton Craighall. He still has the his broken skull from that. Uh, he was hanged at Rushing Falls by Sir Amory Lorch. He was stabbed in the eye again by Gregor Clegane, who thinks, this time I got him. I took out his eye. He's totally dead. He's not totally dead. Killed by Vargo Hote of the Brain Companions, and then finally killed by Sandor Clegane when he essentially chopped him in half during the trial by combat. Um, and he keeps all the markings of these different deaths. He still has the marks around his neck from being uh, hung. He lost his eye and it hasn't come back. The area around his eye and his head is caved in from the mace. He still has the lance wound through his chest. Um, and this kind of leads to him getting some pretty grim nicknames at this point. They call him the Scarecrow Knight and also the Lord of Corpses because Beric is a, is a walking corpse at this point. He is not as he was before. There's actually a really good quote here from uh, George. He gave an interview a little while ago talking about resurrection and fire whites. And this is what he has to say about Beric Dondarrion. <clears throat> poor, Der poor Beric Dondarrion, who was set up as the foreshadowing of all this, Every time he's a little less Beric. His memories are fading. He's got all these scars. He's becoming more and more physically hideous because he's not a living human being anymore. His heart isn't beating. His blood isn't flowing in his veins. He's a white, but a white animated by fire instead of ice. 
And now we're getting back to the whole ice and fire thing. So yeah, not so handsome anymore, Aaron. There ain't no uh ain't no tweens gushing over him. Nobody's trying to marry Baraton Darren anymore. There's like, holy shit, why aren't you dead? So this is this is the other really harsh part of resurrection and what's happening to Barak. It's more than just these uh physical wounds that is happening to Barak. George is saying that every time Barak returns from the abyss, basically, that he's lost something. And it leads to one of the one of the sadder quotes, honestly, and one of the harder ones to read in A Song of Ice and Fire. Um, this is Barak talking about his own perspective on his being brought back to life by uh, Thoros over and over. He says, Lord Barak, talked, Lord Barak touched the spot above his left ear where his temple was caved in. Here is where Sir Burton Craighall broke helm and head with the blow of his mace. He unwound his scarf, exposing the black blues, black bruise that encircled his neck. Here is the mark the manticore made at Rushing Falls. He sees the poor beekeeper and his wife, thinking they were mine, and let it be known far and wide that they would hang them both unless I gave myself up to him. What I did, he hanged them anyway, and me on the gibbet between them. He lifted a finger to the raw red pit of his eye. Here is where the mountain thrust his dirk through my visor. A weary smile brushed his lips. That's thrice I have died at the hands of House Clegane. You think I might have learned? Can I dwell on what I scarce remember? I held a castle in the marches once, and there was a woman I was pledged to marry, but I could not find that castle today, nor tell you the color of that woman's hair. Who knighted me, old friend? What were my favorite foods? It all fades. Sometimes I think I was born on the bloody grass in that grove of ash, with the taste of fire in my mouth and a hole in my chest. Are you my mother, Thoros? So... Whatever Beric is now is not what he was when he started. He's he's losing touch with reality. He's losing his memories. He's losing what it is essentially to be alive. Um, he's forgetting everything about himself. And it sets up a pattern that is very troubling for how George is imagining resurrection throughout the rest of A Song of Ice and Fire. So through six resurrections, he can barely remember who he is and his history has basically slipped away. Well, what if he was brought back instead of six times? What if he was brought back 20 times? What if he was brought back 50 times? Um, it's possible that if you keep bringing someone back to life in A Song of Ice and Fire, that eventually they become like almost a blank slate. Um, somebody that knows nothing about who they were before. This is actually a theory I wrote a while back, and I think I'll turn into a video at some point talking about the faceless men. But basically, the idea that uh, one way to interpret the, the name faceless men is that like, you know, that you can literally change faces. But another way, it's a person without an identity, a person that has lost everything. And in that theory, um, I basically wrote that maybe that's what the faceless men are. Maybe they were fire whites that have been brought back so many times that they completely lost all identity and they were essentially just undead and didn't know who they were or where they were. They just, but they knew they kept coming back from the dead and became like radicalized by it in some way. Anyway, that's kind of a, um, that's kind of a tangent here. That's, but it is something to think about. George is setting up this pattern, especially for future characters, that the longer you're dead and the more you come back, the more it's going to change you and force you to forget things. Um, and as he said at the beginning of the quote, this is intended as foreshadowing. This is foreshadowing for two future resurrections. First one is obviously Catelyn Tully, Lady Stoneheart, and the second is Jon Snow. George has criticized heavily in the past Tolkien for when he brings back Gandalf the Grey, that when he comes back, Gandalf is better for it. Um, he's 
stronger. He has more magic. He has a better idea of what he needs to do. He's better for it. Um, instead, George really wanted to show that there are serious consequences to reanimation and that dying and coming back deeply changes and affects the person it happens to. Um, you know, Barrick was a bright, handsome lordling with the world in front of him, going to marry a Dane. Everything's going great. Um, and presumably a long life, maybe as a turning knight. And instead, when he's brought back, he doesn't get those things back. He's become wounded. He's become beaten. He's death. He's um, decimated person who's returned from death, but is not really alive anymore. Um, if you wanted a really bad pop culture reference, if you wanted to go back to um, Pirates of the Caribbean and the Black Pearl, w- these these quotes sound very similar to Captain Barabosa talking about his own undeath. It's a curse to unlife. He doesn't really want it. Um, I've talked about the idea that John will come back angry or wolfish or a very different character before. I would not be surprised if Barrick and Lady Stoneheart are meant to read into those. Um, yeah, I know Gandalf didn't really die because he can't. He's an Astari. He's not a human. He's basically an angel. So I understand. But that's that's what George references when he's talking about um, bad resurrections in stories. He thinks Gandalf's is a bad resurrection. So he wanted to do a better one. And for that, he shows uh, good Lord Barrick. Oof, poor guy. Just horrific. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the old Brotherhood Without Banners here. So we've kind of skipped over this and went right to resurrection. But after his death and resurrection, uh, Barrick and Thoros and those who remain from the initial um, six score men essentially form the Brotherhood Without Banners. Uh, those we know that were in it at the beginning were Barrick, Thoros, Edric Dane, Harwin Angai, Alan of Winterfell. Um, I may be forgetting some, but those are the names I could pick out that I remember were there at the very beginning um, of the Brotherhood Without Banners. Um, as the Brotherhood continued operating within the Riverlands, as the wars kept going on, and there were many more quote-unquote broken men out there and outlaws, uh, the locals of the Riverlands found themselves not only unwilling to commit any armies, but to defend themselves from it those that weren't called up, those that weren't a part of the war and they needed defense and the brotherhood kind of stepped in to do that. Um, this is Barrick's essentially mission statement for the brotherhood without banners. He says the king is dead. The scarecrow knight admitted, but we are still King's men though. The Royal banner we bore was lost at the mummers Ford when your brother's butchers fell upon us. He touches breast with a fist. Robert is slain, but his realm remains and we defend her. So they're not really allied with the Starks. They're not allied with the Baratheons. They're not allied with anybody. They are trying to essentially act as um, defense of the realm in general, essentially trying to be like the buffer between the war and the common people. Um, I don't know if Lem Lemoncloak and Thomas Sevenstrings were there at the very beginning. I know they joined on later. Um, so they start off their campaign. They're raiding and foraging, and they're they're ostensibly trying to hurt the Lannisters because they're the aggressors at this point. Um, they go around defending people throughout the Riverlands when they can. This is another quote about what they're doing. Uh, we are brothers here, Thoros Amir declared. Holy brothers sworn to the realm, to our god, and to each other. That's the other thing. They're, they're following R'hllor uh, because Beric and Thoros do, and they're in charge. Um, the Brotherhood Without Banners, Tom Seven Strings, Plucked to String, the Knights of the Hollow Hill. So they they've kind of taken up the idea of um, Robin Hood and his Merry Men. Um, they're trying to be a force against tyranny and war itself, uh, which is a noble cause. That's one of the things about the Brotherhood Without Banners. 
um, throughout A Song of Ice and Fire. Like one thing we learn about, especially through A Feast for Crows, is that it's not just the Lannisters and Gregor's men that have been destroying everything they touch. The Northmen have been doing it too. Um, the Riverlanders have no good things to say about the wolves, and especially those that escaped from the Red Wedding. They essentially turn to robber knights and outlaws, and they're trying to essentially stand between them and the common folk. <clears throat> and also, uh, the Knights of the Hollow Hill thing here. Um, lots of people have noted that there are lots of similarities between Beric and Bloodraven. Um, in, I mean, there, there's surface level ones. Like, obviously, they both only have one eye. Um, they both have, like, weirwood thrones and that kind of thing. But when you read the descriptions, it seems like George is going out of his way to make it sound like Bloodraven and Beric look and act almost exactly the same. So here's the quote about Beric. It says, <clears throat> A huge fire pit had been dug in the center of the earthen floor, and its flames rose swirling and crackling towards the smoke-stained ceiling. The walls were equal parts stones and soil, with huge white roots twisting through, through them like a thousand slow pale snakes. People were emerging from between those roots as she watched, edging from the shadows for a look at the captives, stepping from the mouths of pitch-black tunnels, popping out of the crannies, and crevices on all sides. In one place on the far side of the fire, the roots formed a kind of stairway up to a hollow in the earth where a man sat almost lost in a tangle of weirwood. So that's Beric. He's sitting basically on a weirwood throne. That's something. Um, and then we get the description when Bran finds Bloodraven. He says, Before them, a pale lord in ebon finery sat dreaming in a tangled nest of roots, a woven weirwood throne that embraced his withered limbs as a mother does a child. So yeah, it seems like very directly George is using Beric as sort of a reference for um for Bloodraven. And they're also interacting with the Stark children. Arya meets uh Beric Dondarrion, um, who should be dead but has been kept alive throughout magical means. And then you have Bran, who has met Brennan Rivers, who definitely should be dead, but again is being kept alive by magical means and is very aware that the world of the fantasy is real. Uh, there it's, it seems like blood Raven's doing more of a, um, a puppet master thing than, um, uh, than Beric Dondarrion, who seems to be kind of like following the threads of, of fate, but it's not hard to find the comparisons between them, especially the idea that they're both living in weirwood caves, basically. Uh, Oh, super chat here from uh van 99 minus the magic, the brotherhood, the Ban brotherhood without banners are more re realistic version of Robin Hood and his merry men. Definitely. Yeah, I think that's what George is going for. There's also the Kingswood Brotherhood before them. That is definitely a take on Robin Hood and his merry men. Um, so yeah, there's a weird uh, symmetry to the stories of Arya and Bran where they both keep kind of running into the same kind of characters and going through the same things at the same time. Like, well, while, while uh, Arya is learning to use her powers as becoming a faceless man, at the same time, Bran is over in Westeros um, also learning to use his um his weirwood like uh, powers and that kind of thing, and also there's there's a particular scene where when Arya goes up to the kindly man, she notes that he looks like a skull with a white worm coming out of his eye socket, and that's the same thing from Bran when he sees Bloodraven. He notes that Bloodraven looks like a skeleton and that he has a white worm coming out of his eye, except the worm is a weirwood root. So um. There's a lot of interesting parallels between their stories. Um, that's one of the things I would like to explore more. And that's something I'd like to see more people in the fandom explore the, um, the parallel journeys of Bran and Arya and how George is essentially 
um, having them go through the same story almost. It's it's very odd, um, but also kind of fascinating, especially the um, the one eyed weirwood lord thing seems to be a, a running theme for Georgie. Also, when you look at Euron, he also has the one eye thing. So something about that that really intrigues him. Um, old Nan is Cyril Pharrell. Wow. I didn't know that one. Confirmed. Wow. Amazing. <laughs> um, uh, so what's going on with the Brotherhood? They managed to find quite a lot of allies throughout the Riverlands, becoming kind of like a guerrilla resistance force or army within the, the area, as this is the part of Westeros that is being the most destroyed by the War of the Five Kings. Uh, we know that they have allies at the end of the Kneeling Man, Stony Sept, Acorn Hall. There's Lord Leicester. There's the Ghost of Highheart, the Lady of the Leaves, as she is known. There's also uh, folks at the Crossroads Inn. And they basically keep expanding their network as the war keeps dragging on and people lose faith and the ability of the lords to protect them, basically. Um, they also manage to cross paths with Arya Stark. They capture her along with Gendry and also Sandra Clegane. Um, this whole scene is the last time Beric Dondarrion is resurrected. Arya essentially accuses Sandor of killing Micah, the butcher's boy. He totally did. Beric um, challenges Sandor to a trial by combat, saying, let the gods decide, which is weird because, again, like Beric knows he can come back from the dead, but he's not a good fighter. Sandor is a good fighter. Sandor's a really good fighter. So it's unclear why he essentially nominates himself to be killed by Sandor for this for this boy when he could just have him killed. Uh, there's no reason to do this, but he goes through with it. Um, they also steal Sandor's money. That's a fun subplot. Uh, they don't have a lot of resources. They don't have a lot of money. So wherever they can, they uh, they scavenge food and money and resources, mostly from Sandor. This is from the um, it's weird how all these characters and plots keep going back to the tourney of the hand. He has all this money because he won the tourney of the hand, which Beric lost. And that's how they know he has it. And that's why they targeted him to steal it. It's uh, it's kind of wild. <laughs> uh, Riverlands is basically Westeros is Poland or Belgium, isn't it? Uh, yeah. A little bit, I guess. Um, it's one of those places that just continually gets screwed by wars because of its central location. Um, and but there's a there's a very strange thing going on, which is beyond. I mean, the, the Lannisters are constantly looking for Beric Dondarrion, especially Gregor. Gregor has a real bloodlust to kill Beric again because he's like, all right, well, I killed him once. He came back. I definitely killed him again. He's still here. I got to get this guy somehow. Like. Be <laughs> Beric Clegane is his whole thing is killing people and he can't kill Beric. Um, so it becomes a real focus for the mountains men. They can't really do it. But one of the reasons that they're so hard to find is that uh, they've been relying on an unusual resource, the ghost of Highheart. Um, as you may remember, the ghost of Highheart is the strange children of the forest woman. She's definitely albino. It's unclear if she's a child of the forest or not, who lives at the ruins of Highheart, which was a. Um, essentially the children of the forest stronghold and holy place that was cut down by the Andals. And they go and venture to her in order to hear her dreams. Uh, why they want to hear her dreams? Because they're super prophetic. And that's one thing that's definitely changed about Beric Dondarrion. He is leaning into the supernatural as hard as he can. He knows it's real. He's come back from the grave. He's a living miracle. So he's putting a lot more, um, he's putting a lot more faith in these things. Than any other characters but it seems to be paying dividends for the brotherhood they keep avoiding people they keep having information no one else should know because they're taking advantage of the prophetic dreams of the ghost of high heart 
Um, they also only pay her in songs. Um, this is where we learn about Jenny's song. Tom of Seven Strings takes out his harp and plays it for her. And it makes her cry. And she talks about her Jenny. I did a stream about um, Jenny of Old Stones and Duncan Prince of Bra Dragonflies a while back. <clears throat> but yeah, this is a um, this is a very important thing for the Brotherhood Without Banners. Um, they're taking everything she's saying seriously. Barrett goes and talks to her and like very seriously listens and sits down um, and acts on what she says. This also works for Thoros. I don't think he's as successful looking at the um, through the flames, but he does try and do it. And they are both being relied on very heavily. The Brotherhood Without Banners is very much so a um, a mystical organization. Yes, <laughs> being brought back from the dead does make people believe in the supernatural quite a bit. Wait a second. What's going on? Um, for some reason, I just lost like 30 likes on the video there. What the hell? Um, hang on a second. Don't know what's going on there. Yeah, we just went down uh, 30 likes on the live stream in like a second. Don't quite know what's going on here. Um, they're continuing to go down. Um, that's very odd. YouTube has been doing that apparently. Oh, so this is a YouTube thing. Well, that sucks. Um, you know what? Since YouTube's fucking it up. We'll just go ahead and put this baby on anyway. I'm going to assume that you guys have slammed that like button enough. Oh, <laughs> that looks a little funky. Uh, <clears throat> all right, there we go. Wizard hat time. If YouTube's going to cheat, I'm going to cheat too. I'm just going to, I'm just going to throw it on. Um, slam it anyway. I guess if it's, even if it's not working, um, I don't really know. That's, that's how it goes. I guess we can't do the giveaway then since I don't actually know if we're going to get to 200. Um, uh, we'll do it next time. Oh shit. I forgot to do it. Oh. That reminds me, I'm supposed to be doing a giveaway for the video coming up. Uh, I did not do that. I'm gonna have to figure that out. Anyway, that reminds me. Uh, let's go back. Let's go back to the stream. Um, so, yeah, I think that's a really important part of Beric Dondarrion is that not only has he found a purpose as a character um, in his undeath, the defending of the realm, the um, the believing in R'hllor, seeing literally seeing the light of um, <laughs> of R'hllor's fire and what it can do for you that it is actually bringing him back from the dead. But it's also, um, it's given him a real purpose that he didn't have before. Like we saw earlier that he just kind of seemed to be attorney lord. He wasn't doing much. He wasn't commander. He wasn't, um, he wasn't even, he wasn't married yet. Didn't seem like he had a lot of purpose to life. And he has it now, but it's unfortunately like in a very, a very strange way. But he's taking the idea of the like messenger of the gods as a very serious thing. Um, oh wow, this is, this is flopping weird. Okay, there we go. Um, uh, Meredith says, I'm not sure why the Brotherhood Without Banners goes to the Ghost of High Heart when her properties are so super vague and not easy to get before the event happens. Or do they understand them? Or is it just for the readers? Barrick understands them, it seems. He acts on them and it seems to work out for him. I, I think he essentially takes them as an, more signs from the gods, basically, and essentially just keeps his eyes open for them. That he sees himself less as in control of his fate but essentially somebody that is at the mercy of um at the mercy of the gods that there are higher powers essentially guiding him like literally from the Dondarian myth story that he is a messenger of the gods that he is just carrying forward something and it's not really for him to question basically um Beric is probably one of the characters that other than Melisandre takes prophecy and dreams ser more seriously than almost anyone else <clears throat> Um, as the Brotherhood continues operating throughout the, the Riverlands, they end up sort of changing their mission a little bit. Because at first they were very Beric was very dedicated to the idea that they were kingsmen, 
that they were following Eddard and um and Robert's lead basically that they were still devoted to the king in the hand but that has kind of shifted because they can't really be kingsmen while they're fighting the Lannisters at the same time so um rather than just going after the Lannisters they they start expanding their target pool they start going after the northmen they start going after the uh, the broken men and the outlaws that are swarming through the riverlands all throughout after um, in the lead up to the Red Wedding and afterwards. It's essentially they're recognizing that it's not just one side that is destroying everything. It's it's both. It's all the sides. All sides of the War of the Five Kings are making the world a worse place. And they essentially try and take the view that they're going to help everybody. That Beric has seen that as his purpose, that um, the Lord of Light and that the Ghost of High Heart are telling him, this is what you should be doing, Beric. Um, stop the pain of the Riverlands, basically. And the the idea of like staying true to the mission of defending the realm, this is another way that you may be able to link him back to Bloodraven in terms of um, what their general goal is. Whatever Bloodraven's doing in his Weirwood throne and whatever he's doing with Bran, it's for sure with the intention that he's trying to essentially guard the realms of men that he's trying to make it better problem is that uh, blood ravens is very much a ends justify the means kind of guy so you know he's not above assassinations he's not above above basically doing anything to win um but the goal between him and barrack seems to be the same they have essentially taken up the idea that they are the guardians of the realm itself kind of like a night's watch thing <clears throat> Oh, yes, it's a good point, Jess. Uh, maybe the losing the parts of himself makes room for him to interpret this stuff. Yeah, as he doesn't have a strong sense of himself to get in the way. Yet he's lost so much that it's really easy to just for him to absorb uh, relorism and to absorb what's going on from the ghost to high heart because he's just becoming, in a very real sense, an emptier and emptier person. Um, whatever his values were before, who knows what they are. Um, it seems like he's just sort of gone all in on lorism and whatever Thoros is telling him. So then we get to the uh, the old and the big enchilada here. We have Lady Stoneheart herself. Um, we all know the quote, and this will actually is the topic of my video again coming out on Monday after the stream for Grand Maesters and up. Uh, link to patrons is in the chat and also in the description. Um, Ghost of Highheart told Beric Dondarrion that Lady Stoneheart was coming, and this is the quote. Oh, hang on a second. I dreamt of a roaring river and a woman that was a fish. Dead she drifted with red tears on her cheeks. When her eyes did open, oh, I woke from terror. All this I dreamt and more. So that's that's the hint from the ghost of High Heart. The um the woman who was a fish, Catelyn's a tolly there, sigil is a fish. Makes sense. The red tears on her cheeks. Um, as she was dying, she clawed at her face. So she has some really grim uh, scars down her face. Dead she drifted, she was drifting in the river. Um, when her eyes did open, Lady Stoneheart came back to the life just like Beric did. Um, and the really strange thing about this is how much coincidence and fantasy and magic really goes into the resurrection of Lady Stoneheart. Like, there's a lot of forces colliding in a way that feels very reminiscent of George putting his thumb on the um on the old scale to make this happen. Uh, nice hat. Thank you. Thank you, guys all. Um so uh, here's the quote. This is from Arya as she's warging Nymeria when she finds Catelyn's body. There it was, and now she saw it too, something pale and white drifting down the river, turning where it brushed against the snag. The reeds bowed down before it. 
She splashed noisily through the shallows and threw herself into the deeper water, her legs churning. The current was strong, but she was stronger. She swam, following her nose. The river smells, the river smells were rich and wet, but those were not the smells that pulled her. She, she paddled after the sharp red whisper of cold blood, the sweet cloying stench of death. She chased them as she often, as she had often chased a red deer through the trees. And in the end, she ran them down and her jaws closed around a pale white arm. She took it to make it move. She shook it to make it move. move. Let me try this again. She shook it to make it move, but there was only death and blood in her mouth. By now she was tiring and was all she could do was to pull the body back to the shore. As she dragged it up on the muddy bank, one of her little brothers came prowling, his tongue lolling from his mouth. She had to snarl to drive him off or else he would have fed. Only then did she stop to shake the water from her fur. The white thing lay face down in the mud, her dead flesh wrinkled and pale, cold blood trickling from her throat. Rise, she thought. Rise and eat and run with us. So that last quote, that last part, think about that again. Arya through Nymeria has found Catelyn's body in the river, pulled it back um, onto the shore and would not eat it even though she's totally cool eating dead bodies and chases off another one of her wolf brothers so that she won't so that they won't eat Catelyn's body. And then she says, rise, rise and eat and run with us. For some reason, I don't know if it's like wishful thinking from Arya and Nymeria, but given what happens next, it's very odd that she's commanding the woman that literally does come back to life to rise. Um, again, it's kind of all the swirling magic and fantasy that's going on about Lady Stoneheart, like she's the nexus of something. And then the next part of the quote, then she, the sound of horses turned her head. Men. They were coming from downwind, so she had not smelled them, but now they were almost here. Men on horses with flapping black and yellow and pink wings and long shiny claws in hand. Some of her younger brothers bared their teeth to defend the food they'd found, but she snapped at them until they scattered. That was the way of the wild. Deer and hares and crows fled before wolves, and wolves fled before men. She abandoned the cold white prize in the mud where she had dragged it and ran, and felt no shame. So not only is Nymeria and Arya finding this body, but minutes later, Beric and his crew show up. The, the coincidences and the feelings of fate around this are really overwhelming on reread. Um, then we hear from Thoros what happened next. Um, it's really unclear when you're reading the books until the Storm of Swords um, epilogue, and then it's not really explained until A Feast for Crows, like what happened to Beric and what happened to... Um, and what happened to Lady Stoneheart, especially because the gossip that we are getting from the rest of the Riverlands is that people think Beric's gone, but he's been gone before. Like, and then there's this weird woman showing up. She's dressed, dressed in all gray. She seems to be in charge, but people are still looking for Beric. It, it's very unclear. Um, so it's finally get answered in a Feast of Crows in a Brienne chapter. And this is the essentially explanation from Thoros of Mir. <clears throat> Her face, Brienne thought. Her face was so strong and handsome. Her skin was so smooth and soft. Lady Catelyn? Teared, tears filled her eyes. They said, they said you were dead. She is, said Thoros of Mir. The phrase slashed her throat from ear to ear. When he found her by the river, she was three days dead. Arwen begged me to give her the kiss of life, but it had been too long. I would not do it. So Lord Beric put his lips to hers instead, and the flame of life passed from him to her. She rose. May the Lord of Light protect us. She rose. So to go back and break down the situation, 
Beric and his men come across the come across Nymeria and Kat's body at this random spot in the river. They recognize Harwin recognizes Lady Stoneheart or Catelyn Tully, Catelyn Stark basically, and asks Thoros to bring her back to life because obviously everyone has seen Thoros bringing back Beric. It's really unclear why he hasn't been bringing anybody else back. Maybe he hasn't tried. Maybe it's something he's only doing for Beric Dondarrion. But yeah, it, it is kind of curious that he has not tried the, if he's been doing the last kiss on anybody else, it hasn't been working. Um, Harwin, the, I think he's son of Holin. He used to be a man at arms for uh, House Stark. He's one of the men that got sent by um, Ned with Beric to go hunt down Gregor Clegane. He's survived this whole time. He sees Catelyn and, you know, very, very reasonably asks Thoros if he will do it. Thoros says no. And then Beric just kind of goes through with it. Um, but there's a there's something very strange about it, because when Thoros brings back Beric, it's not like Thoros dies. Um, Thoros, he seems like he's like having maybe his life fire drained off, kind of like Stannis, where Stannis seems to look a lot older after Melisandre uses her shadow babies kind of the same things happening to Thoros um but he's still alive but Beric uses the last kiss on Catelyn and it kills him dead um I don't know if Thoros tried to bring back Beric after that but if he did it may not have worked um so there's definitely this is one of those things where you can like um mistake George for Relore or Divine Intervention but either way there seems to be um very very a very particular person and set of circumstances with who's coming back to life. And for some reason it's Beric six times. And then Catelyn Tully once. Um, uh, it's not really, I don't quite understand why Thoros said no to bringing back Catelyn. Maybe he thought it would be gross or maybe he thought she would lose her mind or something like that. If he, if she got brought back, uh, it's, it's not really explained. George just kind of says like, he didn't want to do it. Fine. His stance of fire, right? Um, That'd be interesting. But I think the the primary thing that gets into here and um, the big question about Beric Dondarrion, and this is like the primary question of him as a character, is why did he go through with this? Um, why did he, he? This cannot be the first time that a member of the Brotherhood Without Banners said, can you bring someone back? Um, clearly, Beric hasn't done it before because it kills him to do it. Um, so why now? Why for Catelyn Stark does Beric do this um so i think one thing to get out of the way at the very beginning is i don't think it's reasonable to assume that Beric knew this would kill him um he'd seen thoros well no he didn't see it he's had thoros do it to him a bunch of times before thoros doesn't die um <clears throat> i don't see a good reason why Beric would assume it would kill him too so i i think there's definitely some idea of like maybe is Beric like depressed and suicidal in some way? Does he do it because he wants the living nightmare he's in to end? Um, I I think there's definitely parts of that. Uh, his quotes earlier say how life is basically a nightmare for him, a waking nightmare that he's George has gone on to say he's not alive, that, you know, there's no blood pumping. He, nothing matters to Beric anymore. There's only like the. Um, the fire of R'hllor and the mission, but nothing, no personal joy for him anymore. Um, so that kind of cuts against the idea though. Did he, did he give Catelyn his life knowing that was a possibility 
perhaps. Maybe Beric understands his own uh, fire whiteness more than Forrest does, and he knows that going forward with it would have would end up killing himself. But I, I, we can't know that for sure. Um, there's no Thoros doesn't tell us about it. Beric doesn't articulate it. So, but I think that's definitely th- something to think about. The idea that um that there may have been like a suicidal nature to Beric's thing here. The Beric's uh, decision to bring back Lady Stoneheart. Um, this is one of those things where George is really unclear on the rules of this resurrection and the fire white stuff. So just kind of like even trying to like logically puzzle it out is very hard because there seems to be exceptions everywhere that um that are hard to track. Um, so but let's go back to the idea. Um, I talked about this a little bit a little while ago, the idea that Beric takes the ghost of High Heart super seriously, that he believes what she says, he believes her dreams and acts on them. So when he sees Catelyn Stark, Catelyn Tully, you have to imagine that he recognized the, the dream, that he looked at her, saw the scars on her face, exactly as the ghosts of High Heart said there would be, um, and that she's, you know, the, the dead woman, the fish, essentially, and been like, oh, this is about that. But then remember the last part of what the ghost of High Heart said. She said that she screamed and that it was horrifying, that it was like a terrible thing for Catelyn's eyes to open again, that it would be a horrible thing. So then you have to ask the question, if it's going to be a horrible thing, if the ghost of High Heart, who he takes seriously, is right about this, Barrett goes through with it anyway. Um, so <laughs> the way I was thinking about it while I was writing this and um, trying to puzzle it out is... Again, going back to the idea that Beric is following prophecy so hard and that he's kind of take he's he feels like he's just a messenger of R'hllor, basically, that he has no choice in what he's doing. He's just following the dreams and the prophecies wherever they go. I think it makes some sense if you're in that mind space that recognizing that he's presented with an opportunity to make the prophecy come true, he felt like he had to even though the ghost of high heart warned him it was the the consequences of bringing her back to life um yeah uh, Aaron just said basically the same thing Beric might have understood the prophecy and thought she needed to be brought back that he sees himself only in terms of a cog in the machine that he only sees himself as following the plan that the gods are revealing to him because he's very very religious now he's very very into these ideas so I think it's very possible that's what you're supposed to understand um that's the only real logic I can get around it. Um, there, well, no, that's not true. Okay, so there's one other thing um, that I think may be a part of this, and that is the fact that Beric is very much um, tied to the Starks throughout the story. Um, so the whole start of Brotherhood Without Banners is why? Because Ned Stark ordered Beric to go out and get Gregor Clegane. So in a way, he's still following Ned's command. And then he meets Arya Stark out of all people in the world. So he meets Ned's daughter um, and has a long talk with her and they interact quite a bit. Like think for weeks at a certain point, they they are together. Um, so it may Barak in his heart may feel like he owes a debt to the Starks in a way. Maybe he feels like he owes a debt to Ned Stark for not completing his mission that um, maybe he feels a sense of guilt that if they had caught the mountain and then if they had brought him to justice, that maybe the War of the Five Kings wouldn't have happened. And that 
this is his way of uh, making it up to the Starks and to Ned Stark and Arya because that was part of it. They were trying to find Arya's family for her. Um, so the idea of bringing Catelyn back to life may be his like last act of service to Ned and to Arya, a way of thanking them um, for or a way of making up to them the ways that he failed. Because that is a that it's a big part of the Brotherhood Without Banners. They are fighting their guerrilla war against the Lannisters and the Starks and and the uh, Baratheons, but they're not really winning. They're not doing great. Um, or it may have been. Yeah, those are basically the ideas I can kind of get behind. Um, I don't know. What do you guys think in the chat? What do you guys think? Do you think Beric was kind of just following prophecy? Do you think he was kind of maybe a little, a little bit suicidal and didn't want to go through with it? Do you think he was trying to make it up to Ned and Arya? That's why he brought back Catelyn and also to Harwin, obviously. It's Harwin begging him. So it may have been a personal connection um, that made him do it. I don't I don't have a real good sense for it. Um, I this is one of those things I want to go back and read more and reread Barrack and what he's saying and how his how his mind works, because I think that's a very interesting puzzle. And I think it would tell you a lot about um Barrack as a character and kind of the nature of what's what's going to be going forwards in his legacy why he did it um but unfortunately um well fortunately unfortunately he does bring back Catelyn uh Stark to life she becomes known as Mother Merciless the hang woman Lady Stoneheart um and they the brotherhood completely changes afterwards in a way that um echoes the ghost of high hearts like waking up in horror at what's going to happen yes all the bad things happen afterwards uh Beric was more or less leading his the brotherhood's kind of like kind of like a, a guerrilla kind of like a defensive force but they're more trying to fight abuses and keep people safe that kind of thing but the the brotherhood under catlin is much more in your face <clears throat> they are much more uh bent on revenge on killing and hanging and they become a real force of i would almost uh, they don't they seem evil honestly in a feast for crows and a dance with dragons um, we know that they start hanging Freys and Lannisters at a high, high rate, but they're also hanging everybody. They're killing lots of people. They're becoming almost like a um, like a death squad in the Riverlands. Um, they whatever their goals were under Beric Dondarrion, those do not seem to have crossed over to Lady Stoneheart. She is all in on revenge. She is all in on death. Um, the gossip in uh, in Westeros also kind of reflects this. Everyone was kind of regarding the Brotherhood as kind of like an annoyance, but they weren't really a big threat. By the time a Feast for Crows and a Storm of Swords and a Dance of Dragons roll around, everybody is afraid of the Brotherhood. They are a serious problem within the Riverlands. This Lady Stoneheart woman is a very big threat to the Lords and to the Freys in particular. Um, they have gone from Robin Hood and his Merry Men to um, something closer to the Brave Companions or like robber knights and outlaws. Um, of course, I think a lot of us agree with the with Lady Stoneheart in the sense that the phrase deserved their punishment. But we also see her interact with Brienne. We see her interact with Podrick and uh, Hyle Hunt and how her quest for vengeance and the Brotherhood's quest for vengeance has really enveloped far more than whatever kind of defense of the realm it was supposed to be. Um, and it actually ends up splitting the Brotherhood without banners. Quite a lot of them end up leaving Lady Stoneheart's incarnation. Um, I think the Mad Huntsman, um, Edric Dane, among others, essentially quit the group. 
We're not really sure what happens to him. I think they were heading south last we heard. And that's kind of and it's curious that George is making somebody that seems really like a noble and good person like Barrack that he gave up his life for for Catelyn, who then has turned the Riverlands into a horror show. Um, I'm not really I think that's an interesting plot to to unravel. And that's a I think that's key to understanding uh, Stoneheart going forwards and like the message of a feast for crows. The idea is that the legacy of someone like Barrack has become so twisted and and horrifying that the um, that whatever they were is no longer what they are. Uh, yes, Gendry stayed too. Um, yes, like the Bloody Mummers, good call, uh, Guilty Undertaker. Yeah, they were gonna they were gonna hang Podrick just to try and get Jamie Lannister. I understand why. Like the Red Wedding 2.0 seems to be a thing. Um, Jamie was um, seems to be key in somehow to whatever Stoneheart's doing in the Winds of Winter. I don't know. It, is there also when George introduced the idea of second lives? So that's the idea from uh, Wargs, basically. When you take over the animal uh, that had a skin changer living a second life, you sort of absorb them. So is there part of Barracks still within Stoneheart? Is there... St- and what's driving her with such anger because it's hard to imagine like if if they're connected in some way that you take Thoros of Mir he's kind of like a jolly guy and you know he's a bad priest but he's not a bad person and you take Beric who had this um this kind of these ideas of justice and fairness and protecting the realm and you combine them together and somehow you get an, a like a hate machine um i mean Thoros definitely warned <laughs> Beric don't do it uh, I don't really know. I don't even I don't think he knew in, like why that was a bad thing, but he seemed to have an intuitive idea that you shouldn't bring back Catelyn. Um, yeah, it's I want I do wonder, though, if there's some part of Beric that is living on within Stoneheart. I'm hoping it does. Um, maybe there will be some reawakening of who Catelyn was at some point, but she might just be Stoneheart at this point. Um, very sad to think. Um, yeah, Emma, you're here for the trauma. You're ready for Red Wedding 2.0. I'm ready for Red Wedding 2.0. Nobody's going to enjoy it, though. I think that's kind of the point. Much in the same way that um, Beric's quest for justice has become a nightmare on the Riverlands, the reader's desire for justice against the Lannisters and the Freys, it's going to be a um, a monkey's paw idea, you know? Or actually, the the phrase, what is it? Um, When the gods seek to punish us, they grant our wishes. You want the if you want the Red Wedding 2.0, George is going to make it hurt. Um, who knows how far Catelyn's going to go, how far the Brotherhood will go in their revenge against the Freys and the Lannisters. Uh, one of the things that definitely I talked about this a lot with um, Michelle Jaworski about a, a couple months ago, talking about Lady Stoneheart. But one thing I'm really scared about with um, Red Wedding 2.0, if it happens, is that there are likable characters on the side of the Lannisters that are likely going to be there for the for the upcoming wedding and what Stoneheart will do to them. Like uh, Jenna Lannister, uh, Jamie's aunt or Devin Lannister, who doesn't, they don't seem to be bad guys. They don't seem to be bad people. I mean, they're related to Tywin and that's sort of going to be what, um, what they're condemned to death for and how far the brotherhood seems to be going and George's amazing imagination for suffering and pain. I'm not looking forward to it in the sense that like, it's going to be entertaining It's going to be if it happens going to be one of the hardest things to to um to read <laughs> not just sad uh gray waste time horrified get ready to be horrified by what you see from stoneheart and what she has planned 
speaking of video coming Monday, um, uh, let's get to some patron questions here. Uh, we got a bunch here from Morley and a few from Eric. Um, so we'll kind of uh, bounce off between these. Also, you guys at me in the chat, if you have any questions I missed while I was talking, or if anything you want to, um, anything you want me to address, throw them in there. I mean, I was late today, so uh, we'll go another like probably 15 minutes or something like that. I know Radio Westeros is streaming today, so that should be fun. <clears throat> so from uh, Morley, in a storm of swords, Arya and the other captors that were with her are brought to Beric within the hollow hill where he sits on the weirwood roots and is revealed to be a follower of the Lord of Light. What is the significance of this? Uh, I kind of talked about this a little bit earlier, the connections between uh, Beric and Bloodraven and the parallel storylines that's going on between Arya and Bran. Um, I think one way you can definitely take the comparisons between them is that Bloodraven is obviously not a follower of the Lord of Light, but he's still sitting in the Weirwood throne and he's still using his powers to influence the world. So if you wanted to take it in a kind of a meta sense, it could tell you that maybe there is like no specific gods or the, there's no like difference between the magic forces that somebody that thinks they're praying to the weirwoods and somebody that's praying to the lore may be praying to the same thing that there's um because we don't really know what lore is or even if it's real and especially um that there's some kind of fusion between their understandings like for instance melisandre does see visions in the flames and followers of weirwoods and the old gods definitely see visions too that come true so there may be some like like uh, some force or something uniting them in the background of the world that George is hinting at, that maybe there's no difference between them. Um, that's actually one of the cool things. I think Yoke Boy wrote it years back about Melanie Seastar and the idea that Melisandre may be Bloodraven's daughter. It'd be kind of cool if she thinks she's following R'hllor, Bloodraven's following the old gods, but they're not enemies. They're actually the same thing. Uh, question here from Eric. Actually, let's grab one from the chat. Um, Anders Graham, do you think Firewhites have completely free will? Beric seems to have free will, but he seems to be giving it up, basically, that um, he can choose to bring back Catelyn if he wants to. He decided to do it, not that, that it was forced upon him. Um, that seems to be one primary difference between Fire Whites and Ice Whites. The Ice Whites of the others seem to have, seem to be complete thralls, slaves, basically, to the others, whereas Fire Whites are more um more out there on their own but it's it's hard to say we've never seen inside the mind mind of a fire white so uh when Jon snow comes back if he continues being a pov character we may get some answers on um what is the nature of being a fire white like obviously catelyn was a pov character and since she has returned from the dead she is not she has not had a pov chapter so um there's a lot of questions within the fandom about what that means and why george has resisted showing us within Catelyn's mind one reason is could be um with the like the red wedding 2.0 and i made the uh the video i made trying to go into what her intentions are and what she really wants um it may be that george is denying us the information in the same way that he doesn't show us Varys and uh littlefinger's thoughts since she's now more of a schemer character than she was before but yeah it, it's a good question is like if Thoros told Beric to do something in a particular way, could he stop him? Uh, I'm not really sure. Well, I, I think we're just gonna have to wait and see about John's resurrection. If he's a fire white and if he um, has, if he is like connected to Melisandre in some way, um, not sure, but good question. Very good question. Anders, that would be one of the fun things to figure out. Um, is R'hllor one of the old gods in the first men give the faces 
to fire, like the form of fire uh, sacrifice. So R'hllor is one of those funny things in George's um, writing history in that R'hllor is a character in some of his other stories, some of his earliest ones. Uh, one of his early stories was a fantasy sci-fi story about Prince R'hllor and Barristan the Bold, his bodyguard, and the two were adventurers. Um, so I wouldn't be, but he loves dropping in Easter eggs from his previous writings in the current one. Like uh, he has featured the character Bacalon, the pale child in fantasy and sci-fi and a song of ice and fire um, in seem in totally disconnected stories, just because he, he likes writing them in. Um, so that's one thing to think about with R'hllor. Definitely that <laughs> it may be, there may be a physical character named that within the story somewhere in history. Um, I wouldn't be shocked if that's the name of one of the old gods. Um, but I definitely think there is a merging of the magical and the supernatural kind of like in the back room of Song of Ice and Fire that the things like the ice and fire and um, different kinds of magics and those sorts of things, they they seem separate, but they're probably all the same. Um, you know, different understandings of the same whatever supernatural stuff George has introduced. Uh, let's grab one here from Eric. He said, uh, Beric seems like a dashing but mediocre fighter who is made braver but less competent with each wound. John is a good but not great fighter who appears capable of reaching berserker states. How will John's injuries affect his fighting abilities? So that is that's an interesting thing about Beric. One of the reasons he keeps dying is he keeps getting caught and he keeps losing the fights. Because Beric is not a good fighter. He wasn't even a good jouster. I don't think he even men entered the melee. So the reason he keeps having to be brought back is because he keeps dying in fights. Um, so like, what does that mean for Jon Snow when he comes back? Um, so he's been stabbed a bunch of times. Um, I don't think he's taken any serious injuries like Beric has. Like, I don't think his eye was put out. I don't think he has like a caved in skull or a massive gaping wound in his chest. Um, so I doubt John's fighting abilities would be affected, but definitely his motivations will be. Um, they kind of addressed that in the show a little bit that like John still had these knife wounds that never healed. And it was more of an oddity than like any sort of hindrance to him. Um, I'd have to go back and read about how John was exactly stabbed and where he was stabbed to answer if it's going to have any part of like affecting his fighting abilities. One thing that might affect him is like how they store his body. like. Um, is he going to be stored in one of the ice cells? Is he going to be brought back right away? Like what would happen if John got um, essentially like freezer burn <laughs> while he's waiting for resurrection? That wouldn't be good. Nobody's going to like that. And he already has the problem with his burnt hands. So that's already uh, one uh, disability I guess he has with his fighting. <clears throat> uh, let's see here. Let's grab another one from the chat. <clears throat> oh, thank you, Aaron, for dropping in the Melanie C. Star Theory. Yeah, Yoke Boy wrote that one up um one of my favorite pieces of uh tinfoil i'm not sure if it's true but it definitely sounds cool and isn't that a better way of um better isn't that a fun way of interacting with theories yeah freezer burn like he's a like a hamburger <laughs> in a plastic bag in your fridge john snow a hamburger in your fridge <laughs> in your freezer <laughs> um <clears throat> who's getting married at the red wing 2.0 from adrian birchall uh it's devin lannister and it's gonna no nobody's really sure which Frey it will be, but he's supposed to marry a Frey. The other one, it was supposed to be um between Lancel and Gatehouse Amy, but their marriage has basically dissolved at this point. So they're gonna seal it with another marriage between Devon 
uh, who is Jamie's cousin, <clears throat> has in his hand healed. No, that was part of the reason that he was able, they were able to essentially sneak up and kill him, that his sword got stuck in the, um, his long claw got stuck in the holster and that he couldn't put out because he hadn't been flexing his hand because it got stiff. Um, he essentially throughout the books has to continually do hand exercises um, to deal with his, with the scars from his, uh, from his burn. Yes, that's right, Jess. I am saying John is like the ice cream sandwich that your roommate left in your freezer since last summer. That is what Jon Snow is. Yep, Gatehouse Amy and Lancel. Amy, otherwise, and Gatehouse Amy, otherwise known as Amory Frey, um, the daughter of Merit Frey. Actually talked about her in a theory long past where I, I wondered if she was uh, Brandon Stark's secret bastard. That was a fun one. Uh, Nono says, so far to come back from life, you need that fire kiss or raised by another who's going to give it unless john's body perishes he just snatches another like cold hands so um melisandra is still at the wall she has not gone with stannis so um right hang on a second let me double check that melisandra's still yeah she's still at the wall when john snow is killed so she is in prime position to give the kiss of life um she did not have the scene though like she did in the show where she met Beric and thoros and learned she could bring someone back to life so um, there is a knowledge gap there of if Melisandre knows that fire whites are a thing right now and that the last kiss works. But that's um, that seems to be the the answer. Most um, think about who's going to bring him back. That will be Melisandre. <clears throat> the John Snow at McDonald's, a very cold freezer burned hamburger. Um, Amore. I'm always bad. I am very bad about pronouncing that one. Amore Frey. For a while, I pronounced it Amy Ray but because I'm bad at pronunciations. Um, he does flex his hand all the time, but it still gets stiff if he doesn't um, if he doesn't remember to, and it stops him from being able to pull out his sword fast enough in situations. It's one of those uh, long-running things George has planted in his story ever since he saved uh, J.R. Mormont. Um, grab another one here from uh, Morley. She says, uh, Beric sitting on weirwood roots, brand meeting Bloodraven attached to the weirwood tree, parts of the tree going throughout his body do blood raven and barrack have anything in common with the weirwoods or is him sitting on the roots merely for show i gotta have addressed this a lot already already but i think that it is intentional by george and that it's a way of marrying together brand and Arya's storylines and showing the rising effect of fantasy on the stark children that um i don't think there's like a literal connection between blood raven and barrack but i think it's one meant for the reader that you're supposed to recognize the um similar characters similar characteristics as they're all happening at once <clears throat> uh emma smith emma says the way thoros talks about it, it sounds like the red priestess give the kiss of life as a normal funeral right so mel could bring back john accidentally yeah she could she could just um in order to just say goodbye i guess to him like thoros did it out of um fondness for Beric because of their time hunting the gregor basically they become fast friends um not sure i don't think melisandre has the same kind of affection for john but who knows maybe she just likes kissing corpses maybe that's a melisandre thing she just like smooching the dead although it definitely seems like she's gonna burn shireen first or stannis is gonna command her to and then that's gonna be the death that's gonna pay for the life um <clears throat> it could be gatehouse amy that's gonna marry uh davin lannister um it's up in the air but people know that the wedding is coming melisandre a fan of kissing the dead <laughs> Uh, that's gonna make some people mad at me. Um, uh, Eric also asks, Thoros and Beric seem like an odd couple. How did they first become friends? So, th 
Thoros is kind of like a party animal. He loves going to tourneys. He loves going to fights like he was on uh, Pike when they raided it, when Balon raised, uh, tried to declare himself king. He also um, just likes going to tourneys. He likes winning in the melees. He likes jousting. And it seems like um, Beric, before his time as the, the Lord of Corpses, that was probably what he did with most of his time, too. Um, so they may have met before this and they knew each other from um, from a previous life. That could be what's going on. But they also um, they were also put in charge of the group that Ned sent out. So they obviously would have had to interact with each other. Um, they were gone for quite a while before Beric died. Um, like going from King's Landing to the Mummer's Ford, I don't think it's a short journey. So there's enough time there for them to get to know each other. But I'm guessing that they were also um, they were also pals or at least friendly beforehand that they knew each other. Um, in the same way, I, I pointed out earlier in the stream that all the guards in King's Landing are like, oh, hey, it's Barak. So obviously Barak is not just a guy standing in the marcher in the in the marches watching for the Dornish to show up. He's clearly out and about and um, a famous character or not famous. He's not famous like uh, Loris and Jamie, but he's famous enough that um, people in King's Landing know him on site and know his uh, sigil, which is not a thing that every lord can claim. <laughs> uh, they don't really get into, I don't think, their backstory, though, about that. So it's just kind of up to you as the reader to fill in the blanks. Similar interests, um, similar places they've traveled to, most likely. So who knows? Maybe they maybe um, actually no. Barrack would have been too young to go to Pike, I think. Uh, 22. Yeah, he was too young for that. Or maybe some of Renly's parties in the Stormlands. Who knows? Um, let's see here. What made uh, this is from Morley. What made Barrack decide to give the kiss to Lady Stoneheart was because he was weary of living. Or do you think he will tear your motives? Uh, yeah, I kind of went over this a little bit earlier. Um, I think there's I think there's a few good options. There's the weary of life idea. There's the idea that he's just following prophecy and dreams that he takes them very seriously so that's why he went through with it but also the idea of like trying to make it up to ned and aria for um for failing ned in his charge and not being able to find any of like uh, aria's family for her and also because harwin asked him so it seems like harwin and uh Beric have a pretty good relationship they they seem to be friends so it doesn't have to be even one thing anyway it can be a bunch of them anyway as you guys are listening uh in the comments or on uh replay put it down in the in the leave me a reply why do you think Derek brought lady stoneheart back from the dead knowing that the ghost of high heart told him it was going to be a bad thing <clears throat> uh another one here from morley whatever happened to the woman he was pledged to marry lady illyria dane is she still at starfall uh so as far as we know illyria is still still at starfall she has not appeared on the page uh the only time we've heard about her is from that Beric was betrothed to her and Ned Dane talking about how she told him that John and him are milk brothers through um, Wyla. And that's basically it. Um, I would guess she's still at Starfall. There's, there's no reason to assume that she's anywhere else. Um, I would doubt that she still considers herself betrothed to Beric Dondarrion, considering he's an outlaw. Um, I don't even know who's in charge of Blackhaven at this point. Maybe that's something we'll find out in the winds of winter. But um, I... I would honestly be surprised if we saw Lyria Dane. I think the only way we're going to see it is if Darkstar, for some reason, goes to Starfall. And um, Ario Hota is, uh, when he's tracking him, they meet Lyria Dane. That's kind of the only way I could think about it. Um, otherwise, I expect her to stay off page, basically, for the rest of the books. Stream is, Lemmy B says, uh, Stream is making me crave for Winds of Winter so much. 
all the stuff we explored and it feels surreal to, to read it. I know it's going to be great. It's going to be such a fun time. Um, and it's, I got a few comments when I said I wanted to do a stream about this and people are like, well, talk about Thoros. He's still alive. It's like, well, Beric's influence and his actions are still going to be echoing throughout the winds of winter and whatever brotherhood does and whatever Stoneheart does are going to be linked to him in some way. So I get, he's, he's dead. He's gone. He's not, um, he's not coming back to life, but his impact on the story is nowhere near done. Um, how old is Ned Dane? Uh, yeah, I think he's like 12 years old. He's a little bit younger than, um, than John. So John's 15, I think Ned's 12, something like that. Ned was not alive at the time of the Tower of Joy. He came later. Uh, there are ideas that Ned is Ashara's um, child or that Illyria is. Uh, I think uh, Chloe of Girls Gone Canon has gone hard trying to figure out who Illyria Dane is. Um, I am not the person to ask about that. Go ask Chloe. See what she says. I bet she, would, she knows much more about Illyria Dane than I do. Um, if Mel resurrects John from Allen of Oak, she should uh, be with him at all times. So whenever he dies again she resurrects him maybe that's will be the relationship maybe um she'll become the thoros to john uh she'll definitely see it as a miracle if uh john comes back to life and i doubt uh, she'll she will consider herself linked to him in the same way she uh feels linked to stannis she's already tried to seduce him basically um trying to make him the new stannis in her life so i wouldn't be surprised if john gets a permanent hanger on from melisandre but um i think the show probably has some insight there that She's probably going to kill Shireen, um, either on Stannis's orders on, or on her own, and that he's not going to forgive that one. So um, she's going to want to be around John, but probably find herself on the outs. I mean, if if uh, Bear could come back from the dead, Jasper, then I Thoros would have done it already. So I, I'm guessing he's done in the story as in being a character, like somebody walking around doing things. Um, <laughs> and the, I mean, there's also the idea that um, Beric seems very unhappy with his undeath, so I expect John will be too. Um, yeah, that'll be a lot of fun. Great <laughs> How long do we get that Sans video where you can't make fun of them? Uh, video after next. So the next one is a super secret project that I'm going to be doing the Stannis one. Um, where I'm not going to make fun of Stannis, even though he's a chode. Uh, last question here from uh, Maura Lee. Lord Edric Dane gets goes his separate way after the final death of Beric as he returns to Starfall. What do you think will be his fate in the final books? So Edric is an interesting character because he seems to have been screwed by the five-year gap. Um, where clearly George wants a member of House Dane on the page, and he wants somebody to go to Starfall, it seems like. Um, but if the five-year gap was involved, um, when it picked up, Ned would be 17, I think. 16 or 17. At that point, George has no problem considering 16 or 17-year-olds adults. So he could be the eyes in Starfall. He could have whatever he's going to do with Dawn, whatever's going to go on with uncovering RLJ. But since he went against the five-year gap, it seems like he invented Dark Star, um, um, Gerald Dane to fill that gap. So, so what's going to happen with uh, old Ned Dane in the future? Well, it's I think he left with uh, a few other characters, but I think the most likely thing is that he's going to head back home to Starfall. Um, he is the Lord of Starfall, apparently. Um, it seems like he's had enough with the Brotherhood Without Banners and the outlaw life. Actually, that's one of the things I, I wrote about a while back, and I talked about it on a stream with Chloe about House Dane, the idea that Darkstar and Ned may cross paths. Um, maybe a fight over um, Dawn itself. I've actually, <laughs> I wrote a theory where I suggested that Ned and Darkstar will meet at the Tower of Joy, 
because their names um, kind of line up with who was at the Tower of Joy the first time. So you have Ned Stark on one side, you have Gerald Hightower on the other. Well, you have a Ned Dane and you have a Gerald Dane. Um, Don was there last time in the hands of Arthur Dane, like George maybe remixing the Tower of Joy. So Red Wedding Part 2, Tower of Joy Part 2. I think that's, um, <coughs> that's my kind of thought for what I hope is going to happen. But if he makes up with Darkstar, it's probably not going to go well for him. So maybe it's not a good thing. I'm not really sure. Um, hang on a second. All right. Uh, so I think we've gone over enough time here. Um, thank you guys for watching and hanging out with me. Um, hang on a second. Let me, before you go anywhere, I'm going to post the link for Grand Maester level patrons. Uh, so you guys can all go watch the new video. Um, I haven't finished all parts of it yet. Like I haven't done this thumbnail or I haven't put in the, uh, the exact name and everything, but here we go. Uh, link in the chat. If you are a Grand Maester level patron and up, or if you want to sign up to be one, you can go watch my new video right now. It is unlisted on YouTube. Um, just published. Uh, so what do we have going on? So Monday, there'll be a premiere for my latest video talking about what Lady Stoneheart will be doing um, in the Winds of Winter. We touched on parts of it here. That's the reason I want to talk about Beric Dondarrion and Thoros Amir, because they are integral to the Stoneheart plot. Um, <clears throat> stream next Sunday, same time, uh, Saturday at 2 p.m. I'm guessing I'll probably be talking about um, the the, vid the upcoming video then. Uh, maybe do a Q&A or something like that. Fold the Thoros thing into it. Um, I don't th I don't have a guest plan or anything like that. It might just be me again. Hopefully the lakes don't go crazy. Um, maybe I'll do the giveaway I was playing for the video on the stream. Actually, hang on. I'll show you. Let me unwrap it. I've been saving this one. I did a, I did a giveaway for the last stream. We're going to do one for the next video. But I fucked it up. I didn't put it into the video, so maybe we'll do it. We'll do it for the stream or something on the channel. Let me unwrap it. Don't go anywhere. This is gonna be exciting. So what? What's in the bubble wrap? <laughs> Last time I gave away the uh, Song of Ice and Fire calendar and a couple of faceless coins. Uh, this will be prize for the uh, upcoming giveaway: Storm of Swords Illustrated Edition. But it's not just the Storm of Swords Illustrated Edition. It is a Storm of Swords Illustrated Edition signed by George R. R. Martin. So that'll be the, uh, the next giveaway. I have my own copy up here. I bought my own. But, so I bought two, and that's what we'll be giving away uh, with the upcoming video and stream. Um, so look forward to that next Saturday. Um, yeah, Magician versus Bubble Wrap. Bubble Wrap wins. Um, that was some good wrapping from George's store out there in Santa Fe. That's one thing you can do, by the way. You can go order books, sign books from his store. Um, so check out for that. Uh, if you enjoyed the stream, and I hope you did, um, throw a like on it, subscribe, hit the bell button so you get notified of future ones. If you want to support me um, and get access to exclusive content and the patron Slack, you can go to patreon.com slash Joe Magician. Um, and... Coming up in a half hour, Radio Westeros will be going live talking about old Jay Connington and um, with, uh, let's see here, with Matt from um, from Davos Fingers. Uh, let, me grab, let me grab the stream link for you. So that's what I'll be watching in a half hour after I put away all my stuff. Um, thank you guys for hanging out. Thank you for all the patrons and all the support, the super chats. Oh, thank you again. Morally sent another uh, super sticker through. Um, appreciate it very much more. Um, yeah, I'll see you 